Hello everyone, welcome to yet another Lab News podcast. Thanks very much for being here. Hope everyone is well. Now it is most certainly that time of year. There are decorations up, there are Christmas trees for sale. It has come a little bit early, that's true, but I think perhaps this year we're all craving a little bit of joy. So on that note, this episode is going to be something festive. So come on in from the cold weather, grab a chair in front of the fire, have a glass of eggnog, and let's celebrate Christmas in the most sciencey way I can think of, the Royal Institution Christmas Lectures. Now, back in 1825, not content with already having revolutionised our understanding of electromagnetism, a certain Michael Faraday set up what we now know as the Christmas Lectures by the Royal Institution. And let's remember, he did this at a time where organised education for children of any kind was pretty rare. And amazingly, they've been running every year since. There was a brief pause of four years for World War II, but other than that, Kids and adults alike can always count on something scientifically delicious from the RI over the Christmas period. So, to help get us in the mood, I tracked down the three scientists that will be delivering this year's lectures. They'll be delivering one talk each, and overall the lectures will be called Planet Earth, A User's Guide. So, put your feet up and enjoy my interview with geologist Chris Jackson, physicist and all-round ocean advocate Helen Chertsky, and environmental scientist Tara Shine. Hello, Christopher. How you doing? I'm good, thank you. You're in very grand surroundings. Are you at the RI now? I am at the RI, yes. I mean, what better place to be inspired by science than the RI with this illustrious room here. Before we get on to talk about the RI lectures this year, let's talk about you. So you're a geologist. I am. And I I understand you're a professor of basin analysis, is that right? Yeah, so I'm uh, the professor of basin analysis. What that essentially means is I am interested in the structure and evolution of the earth over tens of millions of years. And if we want to understand how the earth has changed its structure as a function of plate tectonics, or it's evolved in terms of the landscapes or the seascapes, that record is preserved in, a, in things called sedimentary basins. So these are essentially depressions on the Earth's surface. So imagine you walk out and see a big deep valley. It's the, it's the layers of sediments that are deposited in there. They contain a, you know, the changing climate and the changing rainfall. They have things about whether there's been volcanoes in the area. So there's this amazing thing we call the rock record, which records all of those changes on Earth. So that's my job is looking beneath our feet or around us in the rocks that are exposed in mountains to try and reconstruct what the earth looked like. Uh, and what kind of actual science do you find yourself doing? Is it kind of drilling and boring or, or imaging? Yeah, so we do a couple of different things. So one thing we do is we look at the rock preserved beneath our feet. So to do that, we've got two ways of looking at the rocks beneath our feet because they're under the tarmac, as I am here in central London. So one way is by actually drilling a borehole. So you drill a hole down and you recover a physical piece of the rock, which is two kilometres beneath our feet and is 150 million years old. And we can try and see from that, okay, you know, this area was underwater and there were these animals living there at this time. So we, we use direct kind of rock evidence of, of, of the previous sort of state of the earth. But that's very two-dimensional, isn't it? It's a very small borehole, like the size of a, a Coke can. 
The other thing we can use is a thing called seismic reflection data. Now, these are geophysical images. These are, imagine like a CT scan of the Earth. Like you have your body, which allows you to see inside your body. We can do the same with the Earth. We can look down into the Earth a couple of tens of kilometers and over enormous areas. So over a, you know, a few thousand square kilometers, we can, we can see ancient rivers and ancient mountains and ancient rift valleys as well. And if we can combine the boreholes and those geophysical images, if we combine them together, we can start to put together a very detailed picture of what the Earth looked like in a particular place millions and millions and millions of years ago. So that's the subsurface bit. But, you know, in your mind, when you think of a geologist, you think of somebody out in the field, right? You think of them on a mountain windswept and with a rock hammer. And that's the other bit of what I do. So sometimes we actually need to go out into the field, into the physical environment to look at rocks which are not buried anymore, they've been exhumed. They've been brought up in mountain belts and we can actually go and put our hands on them and look at their color, look at their, you know, the, the grains they're made of. We can pull out fossils. You know, if you're a paleontologist, you'll pull bones out and look at what the life was like in this layer from the Triassic, let's say. So we can do all of this stuff as well with the exposed rock around us. And it's a combination of those two things I find most exciting about my job. One is the physicality of going out into the outdoor space and looking at rocks and doing the hero kind of job <laughs> macho thing. And the other bit is far nerdier probably, you think, in, your, in my mind, in your mind perhaps, that we kind of do all this very fancy stuff to image down beneath our feet. So it's like that remote or hidden earth we're still trying to get some, some detailed information from. And so then building up to this year's lectures, tell us what we're going to expect then. So this year's lectures, Planet Earth Users Guide, you know, one of the big focuses of that is going to be around climate change and a lot of the discourse, a lot of the discussion around climate change relates very much to the, the now and the future. And what I want to do is take people in my lecture through a much longer journey of the Earth and the climate change on Earth over billions of years. So what I want to do in my lecture is provide um, the, the, you know, the, the, the audience with a kind of baseline, like what can control, what can make the climate change on Earth? Over what sort of timescales do those changes occur? And how has life on Earth adapted or not to those changes? Because by having that longer term, you know, deep Earth perspective or deep time perspective, let's call it, you know, ten, billions of years, we can then start to contextualize what's happening now. And we can also then make some more informed predictions about what may happen in the future as well. So I think we all need this in 2020 with COVID, right? We've been cramped up in our houses. We're very much living day to day. Where do I find toilet roll and a bag of crisps, right? But what, I, what I'm going to do is take you know, people into these fantastic spaces beneath our feet and billions of years ago, but make it very relevant to a, a, a very topical question. You know, what is the climate like now and how is it likely to change in the future and how might that impact us? And I guess this year, because of the, the other existential threat of COVID, uh, the lectures are going to have a slightly different structure and form, I guess. Yeah, so we're having to work, you know, kind of very hard at um, how to, you know, the Royal Institution of Christian Lectures, 1825, you know, magically sort of um, set up as this thing for, for children, right? So, so for, for young adults to, to be wowed and, and engaged in science. And that's a hugely important thing. Not having a studio audience challenges that, but it does offer opportunities to do things differently, which still meet the original remit of the Christmas lectures, which is doing accurate, awesome, topical science and 
allowing you know the public to see that it just so happens we live in a time where you know people are consuming and and, and uh, accessing more information on the internet and it just so happens this is the year of covid so we're all being we've kind of being forced to do that right um, but we can still do that i think and actually you know looking forward from 2020 it still is part of that you know kind of democratizing science allowing people to access science before you had to have a ticket to come into this room just behind me to sit and see the christmas lectures and if you if your name's not down you're not getting in like a nightclub but now we have these tools which allow us to take the science into people's homes and by taking it into people's homes you know we can do two things one is we don't just reach more people than the few hundred who sit in the Faraday lecture theatre but we also take it to different people and that's the thing I'm really passionate about is 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 allowing a much broader group of people to to engage with the science and see why the science is important and how it's impacting their daily lives and if we want people to to become scientists and we want people to respond to guidance based on science let's say they need to kind of have some access to the science and how it's being done and the people doing it the people who are used to having everything delivered to them because they had financial privilege in let's say academic conferences or even you know traveling into central london to come and see the yeah. christmas lectures you know those people may lose out quote unquote but it does open it up to a much broader um, population and in a much broader group of people and so I just think we have to do that we believe in we believe in access to science we want people to follow scientific guidance we need to let them kind of get you know be, look behind the curtains yeah. and see what's going on and, and not just a privileged few but to the many um what what got you into science did do you remember watching the Christmas lectures yourself as a kid or or if not who was it that inspired you I never watched any of the Christmas lectures because my parents were both nurses and they weren't, they never went to university. So I, and I was a very sporty kid. So I spent most of my time not doing <laughs> schoolwork yeah. or science. Um, but I got into it because of the natural world around me eventually, you know, I would go out in the, in the Peak District near where I'm from and sort of look around and see all this amazing geomorphology, these landscapes and wonder how they got to be like they are. And that then triggers a desire to find out about Geology, you know, so it's the other way around. It's not like, oh, I like these fundamentals of physics, chemistry, biology, and maths. It's like, oh, there is this amazing thing. How does that work? And people are built differently, right? Some people come from it from a very mechanistic, physical basis, and then they apply that to something they see. Whereas I needed, I think, just the sort of kid I was growing up, I needed to have that kind of, I needed to be in that outdoor space seeing this amazing big thing that was like spinning around my head. And then you know, I've kind of over the 43 years of my existence, I've sort of eventually found out how th some of those things work. Good luck with the lecture. And um, I'm very much looking forward to seeing it. Yeah, thank you. So, so am I. <laughs> <laughs> that was the brilliant Professor Chris Jackson there. And it sounds like we're in for a real treat for his lecture, where he's dealing very much with the Earth bit of Planet Earth, a user's guide the physical rocks and substrata beneath our feet and what it can tell us about what the planet has been through over its history. But of course, our planet isn't all about the rocks. There's another very important component too, the ocean, which is why I was really pleased to have a chat with our next lecturer, Helen Chertsky. Now, many of you will probably know Helen. She's an incredible science presenter and popularizer, and you would have seen her on various programs on the BBC and elsewhere. But I started by asking her about her academic background, because in many ways she's had quite a circuitous route to her current position with a PhD in explosives physics before transitioning to become an expert on oceanic bubbles. 
Yeah, it's not as bonkers as it sounds that. So um, I, I, you know, I, I, I did a, a PhD in uh, soft condensed matter physics. So, so exp like experimental solids physics, that kind of thing, you know, not quantum or cosmology, but, but, the, but the real world stuff. And um, I was really interested in small things happening really quickly. So I, as part of my PhD, the, my major tool was high speed photography. And this is before you could just buy a phantom. We were actually using prototype phantoms. Uh, to, they sent them to us to test them because my lab were the experts in in the we had high speed photography going back to the 50s. So um, when I finished doing that, I loved building the experiments. I loved the creativity involved in measuring stuff that, you know, was really hard to get at. Um, and I liked having a lab that was a bit like a, you know, technic Lego box where you just pulled all the pieces out and then built them into whatever you needed. Um, but I didn't want anything to do with explosives and I never really had. And uh, I, I, was, I didn't like that topic, but I did like the science it opened the door to. So um, when I finished that, I spent six months you know, writing up papers and just reading every edition of Scientific American and Nature and New Scientists that I could find, looking for a field that used this kind of mesoscale physics. And um, Bubbles had come peripherally so much because they'd done high speed photography they had done they had some bubble expertise they sent me to someone they sent me to someone else and i wound up knowing nothing about the ocean or about bubbles um working for a guy called grant dean at the scripps institution of oceanography and he taught i taught him about high speed photography he taught me about acoustics and we were studying bubbles in the ocean and that was where i kind of i remember in that lab so i turned up in this lab and it was completely familiar there were tanks and pipes and things and oscilloscopes and i understood all of that and then after three weeks they kind of brought in this beast of a thing that i had never seen before and this was designed to go out into the ocean and i kind of fell off this cliff into this abyss of stuff i didn't know they all knew about the ocean and so even though I've been living by this ocean for three weeks at that point, I hadn't really clocked like this was what they were doing. And suddenly I realized where I was and what Scripps was and what the ocean was. And no one had ever told me. And I was so indignant that I had read all these books and I'd watched the Christmas lectures and I'd done all this stuff and no one had ever talked about the ocean. And it seemed to me the biggest sort of travesty uh in science that I knew about. And so I had to learn. So I learned to scuba dive and you know and I carried on. So it was never planned, but I think I ended up in the right kind of place. I spent years and years and years pitching the ocean to the BBC. And yeah. because they didn't know anything about it, they didn't understand there was, I mean, that, that's the way of, that's the way of these people, especially science journalists, they kind of assume that they know the way the world works, all the big pieces. Yeah. And if you sort of say, well, there's this thing that you don't know about, they don't really, and especially because the ocean kind of looks the same on the surface. Everyone's like, oh, it's a big blue pond. What, what is there to know? And, and so I would drop things in like that whenever I got the chance. Yeah. Just and finally, they let you do a Christmas lecture, and you decide what you you have full <laughs> control over what gets said. And um, now I can talk about all the things that no one's ever let me talk about on the BBC before, however much I've tried in bits over the years. And so that brings us on nicely then to the Christmas lectures. Um, I, I guess that you've given us a bit of a hint there. Your lecture, I guess, is going to be based on the ocean. Yes. So I'm giving the middle one of the three, and um, the ocean is. You know, people talk about a blue planet so casually as though, oh, you know, it could have been could have been pink, could have been green, some other color. It's not pink and it's not green. It is blue and it's blue because water is blue and there is a lot of water on Earth. And it's it is Earth's defining feature. And it kind of it's, it's always interested me that even since Carl Sagan, you know, and the pale blue dot and Earthrise, all these things, even you talk to the Apollo astronauts, they say what 
really struck them wasn't you won't find a single Apollo astronaut who says it was standing on the moon that changed their worldview. Every single one will say it was looking back at Earth, yeah. all of them. And um, it really bugs me <laughs> that we kind of, we've got this fetish about going into space. I don't have a problem with space. I'm just like, how about appreciating what we've got? Because that's what the message of Apollo was. And it is the message of the ISS. And yet people are, oh, we're going to space. No, 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 we're going to look back at Earth. All we're doing is getting a better viewpoint. And obviously that's a bit simplistic because in the future there might be ways to go further afield. But um, yeah, so I think the concept of thinking about ocean, you know, that Arthur C. Clarke quote where he said, it's utterly ludicrous that we call this planet Earth when it is so clearly ocean. I think it's it's high time we started seeing ourselves as citizens of an ocean world rather than assuming that being land-based mammals is the, you know, is the default. It's not. Yeah. We're the anomalies on Earth. We weird little land-based things are the minority on Earth and we'd better get used to it. And we're, we're living under the ocean's shadow all the time. And it's that's an amazing thing to be. It's an amazing system to be part of. But A, we are part of it. We're not separate to it. Um, and B, the ocean is what's driving, the ocean is what's running things. The, the Christmas lectures then, I suppose, are, in some ways, they're a bit of a jewel in the crown of scientific outreach. And you've pretty much done every form of scientific outreach it is possible to do. So um, how, how do you feel about the Christmas lectures? I'm, I'm delighted to have the opportunity. I'm obviously, and I will say this, I will keep embarrassing the Royal Institution with this, but the only other time they've had a lecture on the ocean was in 1839. <laughs> oh, really? I think, yes, it's been a while. So um, they are, I'm very grateful that they are catching up. <laughs> and I'm, I'm clearly care about that that opportunity a lot and it's it's interesting because obviously this year it's it is going to be unusual you know we'll have a virtual audience instead of a real audience we can't do anything about that the most important thing is that the audience is safe um and that's that's you know that leads you to a virtual audience and so clearly um an enormous honor and it's clearly something which is you can do almost everything else. And this is something that very, very small number of people have the opportunity to do. And I think the thing that almost matters more in a way is that these, you know, most of what I've done for TV is not available forever to everyone because things get hidden behind paywalls and on, you know, somewhere on iPlayer that reappears every three years or something. Whereas these get put online and are seen by people all over the world, you know, forever. And that's actually a bigger responsibility in a lot of ways because um, first of all, you know that someone is, and this is fair enough, they're going to look back in 30 years and go, gosh, they thought that. Who on earth thought that in 2020, right? Because some of it is going to seem really old fashioned. But it's also really interesting taking the tradition forward. And I think the most important thing, so I, I think that lectures these days get a rough ride because a lecture is associated with this very old school view of universities and the, you know this sort of bow ties and very formal nature of doing things and i don't think that's what a lecture is at all i think that a lecture is about human talking to another human and the most fundamental building block of of human civilization when it comes to building knowledge is a human talking to another human and that is the opportunity of these lectures is that you have the opportunity to, to talk to others and share. And so I think that's what a lecture is. And that lecture theatre is the best environment for speaking to other humans that I have ever been in. And I've spoken all over the world in all kinds of places. It is the best place to connect with another human. And so uh, obviously that makes it a shame there won't be a real audience on this occasion. <laughs> um, but so you have all that tradition, but you also, you know, new things come along. You can interview people by Zoom and things, you know, we're having to do a bit more of that kind of thing this year because it's online. 
but it also you can extend out a little bit from what the royal institution lectures have traditionally been like you keep all the good things that thing of a human talking to another human i don't think that should go away one human telling a story i don't think that should go away because that goes out of fashion in tv right it used to be you could do a single presenter documentary no one lets you do that these days for some reason apparently a human can't hold another human's attention which is just rubbish that entirely is a production of the editing and the storytelling so so i think this thing of having one human tell a story is a very powerful thing and that i think should stay but a lot of the the less you know the traditions that are perhaps more old-fashioned they can go so so i think there's this thing of you obviously want to you know sort of respect the tradition and and respect the teachers who got you here because i remember being taught I remember uh, James Jackson's lectures on the planet and Frank Close and the Cosmic Onion. And I remember those, they taught me. And now it's my turn to teach someone else. And so it's kind of the both, it's those two things. You have the tradition yeah. and then you also have, and this very fundamental human thing. And then you also have, but you can do it in different ways. You can maybe include participants from the other side of the world in a way that you couldn't before. Maybe you can do online things to join in with that you couldn't do before. So it's 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 not just holding on to the tradition, but it's reinvent holding on to the best bits and reinventing the rest. And in, and in some ways, uh, even though it's come out of a, obviously a, a horrible situation this year, uh, because it's aimed at a younger audience who obviously at this point in time, they're digital natives. The idea that you can do this kind of thing is going to appeal to them. That's interesting, though, because I actually so all of these things are like pendulum swings. And I think that um, pendulums swing one way and they swing the other way. And if you asked anyone two years ago, oh, digital everything, everyone's going to be virtual, whatever. Right. Six months in what we now eight months into lockdown, everyone is desperate to see another human being. <laughs> and, and I think that actually the, the good thing that comes out of these things is fine. Yes, we've all had to work out online things and it, it sort of works you can limp along some things better some things worse and it's the same thing that you can um hold on to the good bits but then you actually value the bits that were before and i don't think there's any substitute for being for something for being in the same room as someone at least sometimes so so i think that actually this generation yes that they, they may well be called digital natives but actually they may well value human contact in a way that previously, you know, their immediate predecessors didn't. The fab Dr. Helen Chertsky there with an ode to attending lectures in person, and I wholeheartedly agree. So that's the earth and the ocean dealt with. Time to turn our eyes skywards for our third lecturer, the environmental scientist Tara Shine. Hello, Tara. Hey, how are you doing? I'm all right. Thanks for talking to me. So let's get straight into the Christmas lectures then. Uh, that's exciting. Very exciting. Slightly daunting. Weight of history on your shoulders and wanting to do a good job and very important subject area. So, um, but yeah, really exciting and exciting to be doing it with Helen and Chris as well and to be taking this more rounded view of, of our planet. Yeah, so I'm really excited about that. Yeah, it's really interesting this year. So like an ensemble cast, really. Tell us a little bit about what your lecture will cover. Yeah, so I'll be the third lecture. And in my lecture, we'll go up in the air. Um, we won't spend all our time in the air, but we'll go up in the air to look at the atmosphere and what's happening up there, in particular in terms of like, what is it, this air that we breathe and um, that we take for granted? And we'll be looking at then, of course, human influence on our atmosphere and that how that affects all of the planetary processes, the different Earth systems that Helen and 
and Chris will have introduced, we look then at how human activity is affecting those and looking at what we can do to find our way towards a better future. Excellent. So tell us a little bit about your academic background then um, and uh, how you ended up here. So I am an environmental scientist by, by training. Funny, somebody asked me today, did I always want to be a scientist? And my answer was no, because I thought scientists were people who wore lab, white lab coats and worked in labs. And I was like, I don't want to be in a lab. I wanted to be outside. So um, yeah, I've always loved the great outdoors. I love the natural world. And so what brought me to science was wanting to understand better the natural world and how it worked. And I've always, always, always been interested in then in how human beings interact with that world. And see, so, yeah, I did my undergraduate degree in environmental science, which I loved because it wasn't any one discipline. It, you learned how all the disciplines interacted. Um, and then I did my PhD in a similar vein in wetlands in Eastern Mauritania. Um, looking again, not just at one aspect of those wetlands, but how those wetlands worked from a biological perspective, from an economic perspective, from a social perspective. Um, and that to me was the, was the gold, although I had to fight tooth and nail in my viva to explain why I hadn't just studied one beetle that lived in one of these wetlands rather than the whole ecosystem. So having a look uh, at you and what you've done since, it seems to me that uh, societal change is, is kind of your main aim. Would that, would that be fair? a pretty good description so yeah I didn't stay in academia um I, I I think I was too impatient to be an academic and again I like the I like the crossovers I like the intersections um and I like putting it into action so what does it mean what does it mean today what does it mean for people um and so yeah I've worked uh, I guess on, on policy quite a lot but policy that strives for I guess a better society so I, I started off applying a lot of my environmental science knowledge in a developing country context because I guess that's where the need was most urgent it was where I could already see that environmental problems were affecting people's lives right here right now today um, and and now you know 20 years later those problems that I saw 20 years ago um, primarily in developing countries are now problems we all share um, no matter where we live on the planet and yeah, so I, I, I really, I do care about this fairness between people, but also fairness between us and the planet. As far as existential threats go, 2020 has been a full on year. Do you ever worry that um, people's attention will be taking off environmental science as we kind of deal with a pandemic? So I, I was afraid of that actually back in March, I would have to say. And then as the pandemic unfolded, I think it, it reversed and where I saw people really instead start to actually have a pause and a bit of a moment in their lives. Like a lot of people were very busy and a lot of people were less busy, but whether whichever category we fell into, we needed to find some way to find solace in the whole thing and time to think and process what was going on for us. And I think so many people did that in the great outdoors, whether that was walking around the block in the city that you lived in or whether it was going for the walk around your house where you lived in the countryside. And that little pause, I think, gave people a chance to kind of stop and think about what was important to them. And maybe stuff isn't as important as we thought it was. And maybe running around being busy all the time isn't as important as we thought it was. And maybe we don't need to get on a plane every time we have a business meeting anymore. And it's been this whole chance to kind of recalibrate and think. And I think within that, we've, we've come to value a little bit more what nature has for us and then it's put sort of existential threat into into perspective yeah i think i hope it shows young people who are obviously our audience with the christmas lectures i hope it shows young people that we're very adaptable and flexible as human beings and um, there's a lot that we can put up with but there's also a lot of creativity we can find we can bring to finding solutions and new ways of doing things so 
um, how we respond to the pandemic and the solutions that we find gives me hope and I think helps us to show people that, you know, um, that means there's no bounds to the change we can make then in, in terms of the other existential threats that are out there. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's really a nice way to think of it as well. And I, I think if if anything's happened over the last year, it, it seems to be that something that's common, certainly perhaps in the Western world, is it's brought out our inner activist. And certainly perhaps for the younger generation that the Christmas lectures are kind of aimed at, is they seem to be primed to take action in a way that maybe I wasn't when I was that age. Maybe we were taking action on different things. So I was reminded again in answering questions today that... Uh, uh, what what I was activist about when I was young was animal rights. Yeah, so I was a paid up member of the RSPCA. I was actively campaigning, writing letters, doing anything I could because um, animal welfare was my thing back then. And we didn't have the protections in place in the 1980s to stop testing on animals for cosmetics or cleaning products or whatever it mean it was. And that was the thing that had me being an activist. So I think each generation has its issue to be activist on and for young activists now I think I hope that they can take uh, energy and conviction from the fact that we have completely rewritten the rules of what is possible in 2020. It's been a really difficult year for so many reasons but what was impossible in 2019 is possible in 2021 and that's amazing that's a great opportunity so the stuff that people told you couldn't be done forget it. The world's your, you know, think big, I think, at this point in time. Blue sky yeah. thinking, anything. We can do anything. What inspired you when you were young? You've spoken about your animal rights activism, but from a scientific point of view, what, who, who were the big people that got you interested in that? Oh, honest answers is my dad, number one. So my dad is a jog was a geography teacher. He had the, the privilege of teaching me and I had the privilege of being taught by him. And we actually stayed friends. So that was quite a <laughs> coup in and of itself. But my dad, my dad took us on eternal Sunday walks and drives to explore drumlins and the glacial features of the landscape in the Irish in, in Ireland. And um, he was always, you know, pointing things out and explaining to them. And then I guess that was from a geography perspective, but my, uh, my mum and my granny did a similar thing in terms of uh, the plants and animals that you'd see if you went walking. And a lot of it was, you know, folklore type explanations yeah. of, uh, of plants or rhymes or stories that went with them, but which were all the time connecting us as kids to our, to our natural environment. And I certainly credit them and many, many, many copies of my dad's National Geographic um, for, for my interest in the natural world. So thanks very much to Tara's mum, dad and granny for giving us one of our excellent Christmas lecturers this year. And they really are worth checking out. I know the RI have cooked up something really special this year. So they're going to be broadcast on BBC4 over three days between Christmas and New Year. So you should check out the listings to find out exactly when they're going to be broadcast. The Royal Institution are also going to put them on their YouTube channel so you can check them out there. Or failing that, if you look on the RI website, that's rigb.org, you'll find a Christmas lectures section and all the Christmas lectures that have been filmed up until this point are there. And when this series is finished, they'll be added as well. So it's, it's really worth checking that section out. All right. Well, thank you very much for listening this far. Enjoy the Christmas lectures and I will speak to you next time. Thank you.